Welcome to the very first episode of the Supercharged Podcast. We did it. We were so moved and inspired by the words and wisdom of Corinne Hillback that we absolutely knew we had to launch with this. Corinne is the founder of Instill Meditation and she is a leader in the Vedic meditation space. She's also deeply rooted in the yoga teaching community and to us has become a dear friend over the years. At Instill Meditation, they believe individually and collectively we can awaken humanity's latent potential with a daily meditation practice. And after sitting with Corinne, we could not agree more. We hope this podcast empowers you as much as it has for us. We're so proud to share this with you and we really, really hope you enjoy it. It gives us both goosebumps to sit with you here and to learn about the power that we have within ourselves to really um, be be our best selves and live this life the way that we're supposed to be leading it. Um, Lexi and I have been chatting with you for a few minutes and I mean, where do we even start? But I think the best place is like your story. How did you get started with this, um, with this practice and why is it so important to you? Mm. Um, well, thank you both, uh, Lexi and Danny, for having me. Um, so in a nutshell, my journey starts probably like most journeys do as an adolescent teen that was just doing things to myself that wasn't necessarily healthy. So I was involved in a lot of drugs and alcohol abuse. Um, I had a very short stint of um, amateur competitive snowboarding for a period of time. And what came with that was a culture that wasn't always, um, as I was saying, healthy. Mm-hmm. So I did what every person does when they feel like they're moving on a trajectory that's not making sense to them any longer, was I wanted to find myself. So I went traveling. And I ended up in Australia with surfboard in hand. And while I was there, I had a layover in Japan. And I thought Japan was super cool. Fast forward about 10 months into my trip, I got a phone call from my mom and she said that she had a friend in Japan who takes on foreigners and they were willing to take me on. And so I said yes. The next thing you know, booty shorts, crop tops and hands, surfboard. I was on a plane to Japan, had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, I showed up and I stayed with a host family there. And what I found out was my host family was very high up in a Buddhist temple. So this was kind of my foray into, um, you could say this meditation world, I was introduced to classical Zazen meditation while I was in Japan. Um, and then when I came back to Canada, I just found, uh, I grew up in Crown Brook, BC, and so there wasn't really a lot available. So I started running volunteer mindfulness talks at a local bookstore. And I wasn't the one leading them, but I would just help you know, organize them, check people in, and then uh, I would help the owner of the bookstore bring in like geshis from different traditions from all over Canada. Um, From there, I was introduced to yoga and uh, other styles of meditation. I became a yoga teacher eventually, Ayurveda practitioner, and then I got into Vipassana. And Vipassana is, you know, for your listeners who don't know what Vipassana is, um, it's a type of Buddhist practice where you go on retreat for 10 full days and you're meditating in silence for 10 hours a day. You can't read, you can't write, you can't listen to music, men and women are segregated, you get fed two meals a day, and it's um, a very rigorous process. Mm. 
meditation is really my practice. I loved meditation. I was a meditator before I was ever a yogi, before I was ever, you know, an Ayurvedi. And I started studying Chinese medicine at a private school in Victoria. And I was in a road biking accident. And I ended off my bike. I supermaned essentially into a boulder, cracked my helmet, got up and immediately started vomiting and um, sustained a traumatic brain injury. And from there, that became kind of the pivot point that led me to my journey now because I couldn't practice yoga in the same capacity as what I could before. And the other interesting thing that happened was I couldn't actually sit down to meditate in the Zen and Vipassana traditions that I was originally mm -hmm. practicing. And this sort of spiraled because then I started to learn as yoga teachers, we're not really trained as meditation teachers. Um, very few people are. And I saw that within myself from my own training. I noticed that within teachers that I was going to. And so it started to spiral and snowball as things do for me researching why was this working and why could I no longer meditate when I could sit for 10 hours a day. Fast forward a few years into my recovery, um, I was introduced to Vedic meditation through um, a dear friend and teacher of mine who lives in New York. And originally I was actually turned off by it. Hmm. Uh, the price tag for it is pretty high and if you come from practices like Zen or mindfulness, um, pardon me, Vipassana, which is a form of mindfulness, um, you know, they're either free or they're donation based. And so, you know, immediately I was like, what, why do I have to pay for a spiritual practice? It's like, no way. But she assured me that Vedic meditation was very involved and that I should do it. And so, um, I started online and you can actually learn Vedic meditation online, but I started with a program that was being taught that offers principles of Vedic meditation, but isn't Vedic meditation itself, that just kind of got me started. And I liked what I heard. And for the first time, I heard an explanation of why I couldn't meditate in those other traditions that made sense to me. Um, and that was also based on science. Hmm. And then also when I started the meditation, I was meditating and I, it was like, I was blown away. And so then that started a whole other series of questions of like, okay, why can I meditate in this tradition and why couldn't I in other traditions? And that led me to um, specializing and teaching the technique that I teach now today called Vedic meditation because it just has radically transformed my life in every way possible. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk, oopsies, sorry, <laughs> that's okay. We're going to talk about um, how it's transformed your life, but I just want to take a look at you um, mentioned Vipassana as a mindfulness mm -hmm. practice and how does uh, this mindfulness practice that is often what a lot of us are actually doing compare with uh, meditation and Vedic specifically? Mm -hmm. Beautiful question. Meditation, um, it's become a little bit bastardized in the West. Um, it's become this mainstream word and you know, we take everything as meditation now, you know, um, from mindfulness to, you know, cooking is my meditation, to running is my meditation, to breath work is my meditation. And in some ways these aren't wrong, but it's important to note that mindfulness is doing something very different to the brain than what true meditation is doing to the brain. So if you are hooked up to an EEG machine, which measures brainwave, 
eight classic points on the right, eight classic points on the left. In a mindfulness practice, your frontal lobes and a little bit of the parietal lobes would be uh, lit up, but really, 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 really bright. While in Vedic meditation, um, your whole brain gets lit up, but not as bright. And this is really good because this is starting to grow the sheath between our two brain hemispheres called our corpus callosum. And for a really long time, science didn't know if it was correlative or causative, um, meaning that if people with fat corpus callosum just really like to meditate, <laughs> or if meditation actually caused a fat corpus callosum. And so what they discovered was that meditation actually causes the corpus callosum to grow. And this sounds really cool. <laughs> Why does someone want it? Exactly. <laughs> Why does someone want it? Um, which is what we don't necessarily get with mindfulness. Mindfulness does something different. Um, so a fat corpus callosum is responsible for the communication between our two brain hemispheres. And so what that means is if you were hooked up to that EEG machine, as you were moving through the day, you would find that your brain hemispheres would rise and fall in operation independently. And so the next time you end up in a confrontation with you know, your boss or your partner or your kids, right? I'm sure we can all relate to, um, you know, we get into this confrontation and then we sort of freeze in the moment and then 10 minutes later or a half hour later or however long time passes, we're like, oh, I should have said that, it's so good. Why didn't I think of that in the moment? Well, it was because stress was ruling the show in that moment. And the left hemisphere of the brain is responsible for our memory. It's responsible for our past. It's responsible for logic, but also, most importantly, our instinct, which is solely based on our survival. Um, our right brain is responsible for our intuition, which is different. Mm -hmm. Our intuition gives us the capacity to actually respond. And response is different than reaction. Reaction is instinctual and habitual. Responsive is when we actually pause for reflect, and then we can actually choose how we wish to act out our intentions and behavior based on the moment. So it's fresh. Mm -hmm. When the whole brain lights up and the corpus callosum starts to grow, it increases this communication network between the right and left hemispheres of the brain. So now the next time you get into that confrontation, instead of existing solely in the left brain that is ruled by habit and pattern and past, you now have more access to communication with the right brain, which is responsible for the right now, which is where our intuition lives. Mm -hmm. So now we can come up with more witty um, comebacks, right? right? But or, even you think of people in like high-stress jobs, like we've talked about, like people in life-saving industries like fire, police, or even, yeah. like, they are reacting so quickly um, in a situation and, and maybe sometimes not in the appropriate way due to high stress, which, I mean, you can't fault anybody for trying to navigate that kind of situation at all. But just totally. having those tools to connect. Yeah, the two quickly. hemispheres so that we're responding. Even, yeah. yeah, or even just, like, you, the brain fog that, that starts to creep in when you when you've really been trying to be creative all day, um, like building your business, even in that kind of situation. I mean, or writing an exam, writing exams, like you get exhausted quite quickly. I think, well, I do mm -hmm. um, once I've maxed out, but yeah, that corpus, <laughs> corpus callosum, corpus callosum. <laughs>
So when we're talking about the here and now and our past and we were talking earlier about just how it, it all really is happening right now. Our past mm-hmm. is happening right now. Can you expand on that yeah, idea? Totally. So we can look at life as us living on a vertical and a parallel. Our parallel being our past experience or our whole past that's taken place. And our vertical being um, our point in present moment. Okay. Our past, the event has taken place, but our past doesn't really exist unless we start thinking about it, right? And so an example that I give is like, you know, if you went on a date with, you know, little Johnny, however many years ago, (laughs) right? And let's say you had pasta and you spilt it on your lap. You're probably not going to think about that unless in your present moment, something happens that triggers that. And now all of a sudden, it's going to bring you back to that moment where, you know, you're with little Johnny and you spilled pasta on your pants, right? So that past isn't actually playing out unless something in the moment triggers it. And so our past only exists right here, right now, based on what's taking place. And whatever is taking place in the moment, it's going to touch on our memory banks of our whole life experience. And this is how we make sense of life. Mm -hmm. And when we make sense of life like this, um, we're now trying to make sense of life based on our past habit and patterns. Um, But when we have a fat corpus callosum and we have more access to the right brain, Now, when we're playing out this moment, we can actually exist in the moment based on something more fresh. It's not just solely ruled on past habit. Um, And we don't have to react to it now. We can actually respond. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? Mm -hmm. If something does trigger something that's happened in our past and based on how um, we're reacting to it or responding to it in the moment, in the present might that show us that something that happened at that time is bringing up something that we now have to heal just based on how we react to it in the now? Totally, totally. Um, Actually, one of my students was just telling me the other day, she's done a lot of study of um, Gabriel Mate, and he's, um, I don't know his exact clinical work, but he's from Canada, I believe, and he does a lot of work in trauma, and he's famous for, um, like, a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, etc., but um, this relates to this word that you use, though, trigger, and the analogy that my student gave that I thought was so brilliant um, that I'm going to relate back here is that when we are triggered, and this is really Gabriel Mounte's analogy, um, we're triggered because we're really a loaded gun. And we're a loaded gun based on our past experience that hasn't actually been resolved. Okay, mm-hmm. And so when something happens in the present that triggers us, that's actually our metric system that's pointing to us that this actually needs to be looked at. Um, and this doesn't mean that you know we become apathetic um, or passive we still you know need to hold other people accountable for any sort of moral or ethical um, behavior that's taken place but we also have to remember that if someone does something that causes us to react in a particular way 
it's really no different than us looking outside and seeing that it's raining and now we're letting that rain dictate whether we're going to have a good or bad day. We have the capacity to control how we're going to experience life. Mm -hmm. And so our gauge is how much are we suffering? How much pain are we feeling in the moment? And so when we get triggered, that's indicating to us that there's some sort of loaded weapon within us that needs to be dismantled. Um, and the way that we do that is we actually go to the body and we feel that. And meditation helps us do that. Meditation helps us let go of attachment to thought, let go of attachment to sensation, let go of attachment to emotion, not by avoiding it, but by recognizing that, hold on a second, if I'm actually witnessing that an emotion is taking place, that means that I'm not the emotion, <laughs> okay? If I'm actually witnessing that my mind is busy, then I'm not this busy mind. And so meditation helps us create that separation so then we can actually feel it and heal it. We can think of um, all of these past stresses in our system like uh, windows open up on your computer screen, okay? The thing about the body is when the body undergoes a stress, right, or a trauma, whatever kind of language you want to use, the body doesn't just record the action that's taking place. It records the whole thing that's happening. So the analogy that I like to give is, you know, if you were walking across the street and you almost get hit by a car, perfect time for your body to actually launch into a fight or flight response. Your body needs to, it needs to be safe in that moment. Mm -hmm. But your body doesn't just go, okay, car threat, right? So now let's say you're walking across the street and you almost get hit by a car, but in this scenario, you've got your headphones on, you're rocking out to your, you know, your favorite like J. Cole song. Um, <laughs> you're eating a fresh basket of ripe strawberries, right? And someone across the street is walking their German Shepherd dog. Now you almost get hit by a car. Again, beautiful time to launch into a fight or flight. But what happens is the body now records every single thing that was happening in that moment as a threat. It was recording the sound, the beat, and the harmony of the music of the song. It was recording the molecular and chemical constituents in the strawberries. It was recording the sound and the size of the dog as the dog barked right in that moment, the noise of the car and the colors, the smells in the mm -hmm. streets, right? So now the next time you hear a song with a similar beat to that one song you, were hap uh, you happen to be listening to in that moment, guess what? Your body is now going to involuntary start to launch into a fight or flight response. Wow. So it's not just what we logically think of in that scenario as a threat. Totally. The next wow. time, you know, you see a dog and all of a sudden you're afraid of dogs and you go, I don't know why I haven't had an experience that I can recall of a dog. This is why, right? And this is called a PCC. It means precognitive commitment. And research shows that by the time we're around 20, we have over 100 million of these mm -hmm. recorded in the system. So it's like on your computer, you have 100 million browsers open on your screen. 
and then you're wondering why your computer's not working well. And the logical response is, oh, I just need to get a new computer. When really, no, you just actually need to click X and shut these down to free up your computing power. And so when we get quote unquote triggered in real life, it's butting up against one of these pre-recorded scenarios that have been held within us. Carolyn Mays, one of my favorite authors, says that we hold our issues in our tissues, mm -hmm, right? It's with inside of us. So we need to find a way to somehow shut down the operating program within us um, that is holding us slave to a past memory of an experience. And meditation does just that. It allows us the capacity to highlight these scenarios and then it goes through its own process of deciphering whether or not it's relevant or not. So then it can actually click X and shut it down and heal. What if we can't establish what X is? Is that still going on throughout the process of meditation when we have, you had mentioned like hundreds of millions by the time we're 20. Um, how, what if we can't isolate those incidents? We don't, have, have, to, we don't have to isolate the incidents. Um, Life is going to do this for you. <laughs> Every time we bump into something in life, whatever is arising in that moment is showing us what is there that needs to be healed. What is there that's taking place? Our job is to let go the ha of the habit of going into the mind and thinking about it, which isn't actually in the present. The body lives in the now. The body um, is the very thing that is experiencing the issue. So we need to actually link into the feeling of the body. And let me be clear, the mind is in presence. A thought is part of presence, mm -hmm. but it's very rare when we can allow a pure thought to come through in the present moment. We tend to then take the thoughts and twist them and mm -hmm. then go on and on and on with them, which we could call like a thought train, mm -hmm. which pulls us out of presence. Mm -hmm. Um, so we, we don't need to worry about trying to decipher that. Mm -hmm. Life is going to do this on, on its own. And also in our meditation practice, it's going to do that on its own for us. It's going to heal exactly what needs to be healed in this moment. All of these go into the body in a sequential order. And that means they're all going to come out of the body in a sequential order. Mm -hmm. Think of those like Russian dolls that inlay, the way to get to the doll that's on the core. You can't just like magically open up the you know outermost layer and get to the core. You have to open up layer and the next layer and the next layer. And so slowly, one by one, our meditation practice, as it's healing the body, it's going to slowly start to dissolve these things as it feels fit. So, yeah, let's start a meditation practice. How how do we I mean the tools are marketed to mm -hmm. us download this app or subscribe to this program how mm -hmm. do we decipher the right tool to start with yeah really great question um, apps are beautiful ways to start to learn meditation but I also caution people with that because who we are is very uncomplicated but the mind itself is very complicated. And so often what happens is people start a process and A, they don't even really understand what it is they're doing because they're just listening to someone you know, speak through a microphone. Their mind then takes that and it starts to twist it and wrap it around. Um, 
And then they end up, you know, oh, I think too much. I can't quiet my mind. Oh, I'm just, I'm way too fidgety. I can't, I just, I can't sit still. And then they go, well, I quit. But meditation actually isn't about that. It's not about quieting the mind. It's not even about sitting still. Um, and so I really recommend finding a teacher in your local area um, in whatever practice or style that you resonate with, you know, be that mindfulness or be that Vedic meditation, find a teacher that you resonate with, find a teacher that has actually worked with other meditation teachers, that has a lineage to link back into, that has their own practice, and start a process. Um, the way that we choose what's best for us, what do you want in your life, right? We're familiar primarily with mindfulness as a meditation practice. Mindful, mindfulness is um, an umbrella for many different practices. Um, Zen, which essentially is attention to breath, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which was coined by John Kabat-Zinn, and essentially he you know, stripped the Buddhism out of it and then laid a technique on a table that was very palatable for the West practice, um, but it comes from Zen Buddhist practice. Um, Vipassana, which is another form of mindfulness, it's a body scan type of practice, um, all the way to, you know, candle gazing. Mm -hmm. All of these practices are beautiful practices, but these practices aren't actually meditation. They're concentrated practices. And this shows us when we're hooked up to an EEG machine, the concentration centers in our brain, which is primarily the frontal lobes and parts of the parietal lobes get activated. This is beautiful. I mean, we all need to learn how to concentrate and focus more. If we can't concentrate, we're just never going to get stuff done in our daily life, mm -hmm. right? You know, from driving to be able to study for an exam, to be able to bang a product, uh, a product out or a project out, for your company, mm -hmm. right? We need mm -hmm. a certain level of concentration. But I would also argue to say that in this modern Western world, we already do enough concentration in this in this life. There's a lot of um, concentration and focus that we do and spend our time on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's not actually more concentration that we need, it's actually a letting go. Mm -hmm. So in Vedic meditation, use a mantra mm -hmm. and I think a lot of uh, people listening have an idea of what a mantra is but can you touch on uh, in Vedic med uh, meditation what mm -hmm. that means how it's used yeah. and how it might look like a concentration um, type practice and then what it kind of transforms into sure yeah so the biggest thing about concentration type practices is it's about the return okay in order for that to be a successful practice, you're returning back to your point of focus. You're returning back to the breath, the body scan, the candle, the mandala, the contemplation, the visualization, right? The guidance from a teacher. You're turning back to the point of focus, okay? Those are your mindfulness practices. In Vedic meditation, we use a mantra. And mantra is another word that's been kind of... Um, misused a ton in the West because we tend to take slogans and say, oh, this is my mantra. My mantra for the day is that I'm a powerful woman and I'm going to get stuff done, mm -hmm. right? This isn't a mantra. This is a slogan, okay? <laughs> <laughs> 
um, or affirmations, you know. They're, not they're, a bad thing either. Not a bad thing either, but they're different, mm -hmm. okay. Um, so mantras are specific Sanskrit words, and they're not arbitrary words, but they're words that are based on the science of sound. And we call the science of sound cymatics. They're used not on the level of meaning, they're used on the level of vibration, okay? And so a mantra comes from the Sanskrit root words manas, meaning mind, and tra, meaning vehicle or tool. So it's a mind vehicle. And so if we think of what a vehicle is, what's the purpose of a vehicle? To bring you from point A to point B, right? We know the answer to that, but we're yeah, so happy. We, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we thought it was, yeah. Yeah, it's to bring you from point A to point B, right? right? And so I'll say to you now, what I said to you earlier, Lexi, you drove here, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, and so assuming that your point A was home and point B is, you know, here at Danica's home where we are right now, would you actually arrive at your destination if you don't get out of the car? We did this already and the answer was no. <laughs> totally, right? It's not. So you have to actually get out of the car, which means... The point of the practice is more about letting go than it is about the return. Mm -hmm. We use the mantra just enough to bring us from gross states of thinking mind, which is our point A, which is where most of us are used to spending time in and life. We're so attached to our thoughts, and this is the very thing that prevents us from experiencing presence. It's not that we're trying to become more present, we already are presence, okay? It's one of the biggest misnomers that's taught. Mm -hmm. We are present. It's asking the right questions what's preventing us from being present. It's that our attention is on our thought, and thought only lives primarily in past future. So this word, this mantra, that is based on vibration, science of sound, is like nectar and honey to the mind, the mind's nature is to think. So rather than going against the mind, like what happens in mindfulness practices, where we're trying to interrupt thought, mm -hmm. we're using the mind's nature, which is to think, to think this very charming word, your mantra. And with each repetition, the mantra gets quieter and quieter and more subtle and more soothing to the mind. And the mind naturally starts to settle down, 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 down from its surface layer of gross thinking to more subtler states of restful and peaceful awareness. And then we let go of the mantra, which is the most important piece. We have to let go of the very thing that we're holding on to in order to transcend, mm -hmm. which is what this technique is really about. It's about transcending. Transcendence means to go beyond. To go beyond what? To go beyond your current state of experience, which is attachment to thought or to um, emotion or sensation. Not confused with the void. We're mm -hmm. not avoiding. We're just going to another experience. What is that experience? Well, the word Veda, which is where Vedic meditation gets its name from, means to know. Well, to know what? to know or to discover the fundamental nature of who you are, which is your essence. 
and that essence is silence and stillness. I liken this to water, okay? Water's nature is to move. But if you look at the water that's in these glasses on the table that we have filled with our drinking water, what is it? It's still, right? So its essence is stillness and silence. And so we like to use the analogy of an ocean or a lake to explain this experience of being, we say. It's all being, but it's just a matter of experience or depth. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter how busy or wavy the surface of an ocean is. If you dive deep enough, eventually you're going to get to a point where it's always calm, it's always silent, and it's always still. Well, the same is within us. I don't care how busy you say that your mind is. I don't care if you say that your mind is the busiest mind in the world. You have an essence of silence and stillness within you. Well, the way that the mind works is in compare and contrast. Can we agree that we wouldn't be able to appreciate happiness if we didn't have its opposing experience of sadness? Yeah, the duality of both sides are so important. Exactly, right? We can't really appreciate peace either if we don't have the duality experience of activity, right? And so the thing is, is that we're so used to living in the what we experience as a binary opposite of busyness, which is thought and sensation that's always coming at us, activity, the doing of our daily life. So that means that we need to swing the pendulum to the opposite direction or contrasting experience of silence and stillness. But if you look at that, it's actually all existing on the same plane. It's all just life. Mm -hmm. It's all being. It's just a matter of degree. It's all the same. So it's not actually a binary opposite. It's the same. Mm -hmm. So once we give ourselves that experience of silence and stillness, the mind now can recognize its nature as that. And so then when we come out of meditation, because the important thing to note is that we don't practice meditation to get good at meditation. We practice meditation to get good at life. Right. So how we're experiencing life when we come out of it. So then when we come out of our meditation practice and open our eyes, that little bit of silence and stillness comes with us. And so the silence and the stillness coexist within the full busyness of our lives. And with time, we're able to locate that silence and stillness amidst the busy activity of thought, of emotion, of sensorial experiences coming at us. Make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, I love it. It's all so poetic. Um, and from that place, I love what you were speaking to before about that's where that almost divine creativity comes from and these mm -hmm. new ideas and these fresh ideas. And um, maybe we can talk a little bit more about that, how that does foster these these places within us that yeah it just makes space for that we have a proverb in the vedas and it's what you seek is within you and we're all seeking creation i would actually argue to say that we are all creative by nature mm -hmm. but we tend to look at creativity as you know being able to draw or being able to paint or dance or something like that but 
you know, in order for us to do our job and write a business letter, you're creating a business letter, right? And so creativity is taking place at all times. Your cells are rejuvenating and they're turning over. They're creating themselves. Mm -hmm. So we are creation. So when we start to look at crea uh, creation from that, most of us, because we're living in left brain, which is responsible for memory, past, future, analyzing, reasoning, logic, which let's be clear, we need that. I mean, we need the left brain to balance our checkbook and to make sense of things. You need your left brain, you know, to remember how to even get to, to this place that we're here doing this interview, right? But when we're trying to create based on the left brain, we're actually not going to come up with anything that's really new and innovative and fresh. We need to be able to tap into the right brain, which is responsible for the right now, which is responsible for newness. All thought, whether it's a new thought or an old thought, old thought actually comes from our silence and stillness. It all comes from there. But it's understanding um, and recognizing when a thought is new or what we call a cognition versus when a thought is just a habitual thought that's actually trying to process itself. Because thought really is just a byproduct of stress leaving the body. When the mind is busy, what do we do? We think about it, right? Mm -hmm. or, or sorry, um, I meant to say when, when we're stressed, what do we do? We think about it. Mm -hmm. And so then that's our experience is a busy mind. And so we have this tendency to think that in order for us to get creative, you know, we need to be more busy, but that's actually just clouding this silence and stillness, which is the birthplace of our creativity. This silence and stillness is the breeding grounds for pure potentiality. It's the breeding ground for everything, for all of life. Mm -hmm. Do we need to, to get to the place of silence and stillness? Is transcendence necessary or is that already happening before we've experienced complete transcendence? Like um, in our pre-discussions, you talked about that being the fourth state. Maybe not state. Uh, yeah, fourth state of consciousness. Yeah. Yes. Is, yeah. So are those two linked, like the silence and stillness and the transcendence? Can you have one without the other? I would say that they're synonymous with one another. Okay. Um, and so just to have our listeners kind of caught up to speed, um, back to what we were talking about before, when we were talking about the difference between mindfulness and meditation, when you're hooked up to an EEG machine, eight points on the right, eight points on the left, um, transcendence is bringing to you to a fourth state of consciousness that is independent of first state waking state which is what we're all in right now if you're listening to this podcast you're in waking state transcendence okay <laughs> second state we're all going to go to bed and we're going to hit our pillows sleeping state third state sleep is then going to um, move into a process of stress reduction which is what we call dreaming state. And each of these states of consciousness have their own operation of physiological functioning that's taking place and brain state. And so transcendence has its own physiological functioning. It has its own heart rate. It has its own body temperature. It has its own chemical constituents that's arising in the mm. system. When we're in transcendence, um, not only is it verifiable, meaning it's repeatable, it can be scientifically proven, 
but it's also giving us access to um, you know what we have coined in our lineage uh, the bliss state and the reason why we call it the bliss state is because your body is literally pumping out the hormones chemicals and neurotransmitters that are responsible for bliss and happiness which is like serotonin dopamine oxytocin mm -hmm. endorphins right and when the body is getting bathed in that it's now starting to counteract this intoxicating cocktail known as stress hormones and chemicals that are keeping the mind active that are keeping the body on edge that are causing us to react and that is clouding our judgment and thinking mind and yeah, I, yeah and i would add too it's our body's toxic in that capacity when it's yeah. always stressed and it's how many toxic. different illnesses diseases stem from stress stress right now is considered the number one silent killer mm -hmm. and in fact in japan stress is so prevalent from overwork they actually have a name for it it's called karushi which is pretty wild stress right? from overwork stress from overwork right um you know and when we look at stress this is one of the very first things that i do with my students what is stress right well most of us when we when we look into this inquiry we go, okay, well, stress is my job, stress is email, stress is traffic, stress is my kids, it's my partner, it's my in-laws, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I would actually argue to say that these aren't stress. These are demands that sometimes feel stressful or cultivate mm -hmm. stress. Stress actually is a physiological response that's happening in the body that's designed to keep us safe. And so to your point, Danny, when you said that, you know, stress is a highly toxic place to live in, it absolutely is. is. Let's be real, this sounds a little bit harsh, but when you are undergoing stress, energy is leaving the core of your body, which is what? It's where all of our major organs exist. It's mm -hmm. where our digestive organs live, our spleen, our pancreas, our liver, um, our digestive tract itself, our stomach, our lungs, our heart right and so energy leaves this it goes to uh, the periphery which is your arms and your legs why so you can run quickly away from that bear that's chasing you or lift a car off the baby that's dying your pupils dilate which gives us the experience of quote-unquote decreased awareness one of the misnomers in spiritual practices is that we're expanding awareness Right? And I'm guilty of sometimes saying this myself, um, but really it was just we're just talking about semantics because awareness is already innately expansive. It's that stress overshadows this and it actually takes our periphery and it narrows it in. And so now all we're viewing in life is the gross as opposed to the subtle, which then gives us a diminished experience of life, right? Which is why so many of us walk around and, you know, we feel like there's less meaning in life because all we're doing is we're focusing on, you know, the gross things um, that's to do with safety and survival, mm -hmm. right? If you're being chased by a bear, you're not going to care about the way the light is dancing off the trees or the moss <laughs> that's growing on the ground or, you know, the, the bug life that's happening right underneath you that it's own little world. No. For good reason. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, you're just going to care about, okay, there's a tree here, there's a giant rock there, there's a cabin there, and if I can just get to that cabin quick enough, I can get to safety. That's it, right? When we live in this state, 
um, you know, the body, it has a consequence. Our skin also gets very acidic and it does that. So if that bear happens to sink its teeth into you, you don't taste as good as a last resort that maybe you won't get eaten. But if you look at like modern health, you know, you, know, you guys are in health, so you know this more than anyone that, you know, disease loves an acidic environment, mm-hmm. right? So, and I love this as like a, as a healing tool. Like this is something, yeah. I mean, stress for sure. That's like the easy byproduct. Like it's like, I am stressed or I feel these, these symptoms, like as you like discuss, but it's also like illness in another sense. Like it doesn't, maybe you don't think you're stressed. Maybe the stress toxicity is not overload your body, but maybe you're really sick in another way. And this can be part of like a healing protocol that that is far more effective than, I mean, lots of other things that maybe are part of your regular routine and just a simple introduction every day. I mean, your guidance to like timing too, to even spend to mm-hmm. start to practice. Um, I'd love to hear, but it's something I think is just crucial for us yeah. as a society mm-hmm. to have on this board. This is something that everybody needs to make a priority. Mm-hmm. Or it's, it's necessary. It's absolutely necessary. And for anyone listening that doesn't have a practice like this already or maybe wants to further their practice, where do they begin? Like this could be something that's just very overwhelming or they maybe they've tried it and they are one of those mm-hmm. people that says like, I suck at it, I'm no good and I just left yeah. it and I don't want to try it or I'm so busy or whatever it is, whatever that story is that we're telling ourselves that's justifying us not doing it. Mm-hmm. What might get someone thinking, okay, this this should be a part of of my routine again. Mm-hmm. Where do they begin? Well, the first step is to, um, you know, seek out a local teacher. And, you know, if you're in um, Canada, I'm one of the only teachers certified in Vedic meditation in Canada. There is another teacher in Toronto, but there's, you know, tons of teachers all over the world as well that travel quite frequently. Um, so you can get in touch with me and I can also um, direct you to a teacher that might be close to your area. Um, I'm located in Calgary, Alberta, though. Um, but if you're in Vancouver and you'd like Corinne to come teach all, you and all of your friends, then reach out to her. Exactly. Sure she come out. Totally. <laughs> totally. So, you know, find, find a teacher. But I, you know, encourage you that if you're sitting here and you're this person and you're listening to that and you're going, you know, okay, this sounds all really great, but you know what? I've tried meditation. It hasn't worked for me come find me because mm-hmm. these are the people that I really specialize in because most likely you haven't been doing the meditation that's right for you. Um, or we have, we tend to have these beliefs around meditation and what it's doing um, that aren't exactly accurate. And mm-hmm. I usually have to bust quite a few myths with people. And one of the biggest myths I have to bust with most of my students, um, actually all my students, is to teach them that thoughts are not the enemy. Thoughts are not bad. And to silence the mind is not the purpose of meditation. Mm -hmm. It is not the purpose. It's a byproduct of meditation, but it's not the purpose. Sitting still is also not the purpose of meditation. It's a byproduct, not the purpose. We don't need to be able to sit still. We don't need to be able to sit cross-legged. We don't need to like shave our heads or, you know, convert ourselves to a certain, you know, faith or religion. This technique is non-religious based. It's universal based. Mm -hmm. Um, If you have a body, you have a breath and you can think, then you can meditate. 
You don't need incense. You don't need a special cushion or chair um, or essential oils or anything like that. Although for some people, some people really work on ritual and habit. And for some people, those really work to get them to the chair every day, mm -hmm. right? But we really don't need these. Um, and in fact, part of my training with one of my teachers in particular, um, we were challenged to actually go and meditate in high volume environments. So like coffee shops, on buses, on trains, in theaters, at sporting events, to see if we could still meditate. And I promise you, even though um, our preference is for a nice environment that is silent, we don't actually need that to meditate. Mm -hmm. And the more that we practice meditating in these environments that are you know, less than perfect, it actually helps us when we come out of our meditation in the eyes open state because let's face it, reality is it's not always going to be silent. It's not always going to go the way that we want it. And so we need to learn how to locate the silence and stillness within us mm -hmm. amidst this fullness and busyness. So first step, you know, reach out to me or find a local teacher in your area. Um, if that is absolutely not an option for you, there are some really great places to start. Um, it's important to note that Vedic meditation can only be taught live, so mm -hmm. you won't find Vedic meditation on an app. But there are some apps that I can direct you to um, that have some nice resources that have, um, we'll say, Vedic inspiration. Mm -hmm. um, one is actually one of my teachers and mentors. His name is Light Watkins. He's got a beautiful book called Bliss Mantra. I highly recommend getting it. Um, he'll get you started with a generic mantra. It's not as potent as as powerful as the Vedic mantras that we use. The Vedic mantras that we use are um, very specific mantras, and they're also given to you individually, mm -hmm. which means, Lexi, you'd probably get a different mantra than what your sister would, right? Um, we give these mantras based on what your current state of consciousness is. So it's like a prescription. Um, it's unique to you. And this is what really makes it really potent and powerful. Um, so Light Watkins book, Bliss Mar, first place I would start. Second place that I would start is there's an app called One, so the number one, Giant Mind. Um, and that was developed by a Vedic meditation teacher named Johnny Pollard. Um, again, it's not Vedic meditation, but it has um, flavors of it, which is a really beautiful place to start as well. Um, you can also jump on Insight Timer, which is also a free app that has a variety of different techniques from concentration to, you know, Vipassana body scan to even introductory Vedic meditation practices by Charlie Knowles. Um, and Knowles is spelled a little bit different, K-N-O-L-E-S, mm -hmm. on Insight Timer, okay? Um, and that's a really great place to start because you'll also get a, an idea of you know, how do you feel when you're practicing a concentration type technique? How do you feel when you practice a um, body scan technique? How do you feel when you're practicing um, a transcending style technique? Um, you know, because they're all going to have different rules and then different implications. So think of this like exercise. All exercise is good for us, right? But they have different rules. If you want to build really big, bulky bodybuilder muscles and you go to a personal trainer, they're going to give you a workout regime, you know, that has a very specific routine. You're going to lift heavier weights. 
you're going to lift the fatigue, you're going to have shorter reps, um, only a few sets, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if you want to build, you know, long, lean, um, more delicate feminine muscles, right, um, more, or more endurance type muscles, that uh, personal trainer is going to give you a different routine. It's all good for you. All muscle and exercise is good for us, but the, diff the outcome is going to be different in terms of how it's going to shape your physique and form. And so this is important to note with meditation. All of it is good for us, but whether you're doing, you know, breath practices, loving kindness practices, etc., transcending practices like Vedic meditation, they're all going to have benefits, but they're also going to have different rules, and they're also going to have different implications for our eyes open state. Mm. Not all meditation is going to bring us to this fourth state of consciousness. Okay? It's important to note that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, do what works for you. Um, but I highly recommend working with a teacher. Okay. Um, Corinne, honestly, just listening to your voice, <laughs> like we're going through transcendence and stillness right now. But I, um, I don't want to wrap this up, but I feel we'll probably have a conversation or two ahead of us on another podcast. Um, the thing that I, on your instillmeditation.ca website, that's how you can reach Corinne. Um, she says the thing about meditation is you become more and more you. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we mm -hmm. can all do that. I think now is like the time to celebrate that and not um, look to our neighbors and our friends and compare. But are there any like leading thoughts you want to share um, about the idea of becoming more and more you? which you've eloquently shared for this last hour, but I hate to, to take you away on one last thought if you had that. What you are is relaxed. What you are is happiness. What you are is bliss. And the only way that we can recognize that is if we stop uh, seeking these things outside of ourselves and start looking for a sustainable tool that brings us inside so we can get to know ourselves more and more and more and more on this level so then we can bring ourselves through our activity. That would be my last piece of advice. That's amazing. Thank you so much. It's Thank been you. an absolute pleasure. Um, yeah, you are such a gift. And learning from you today. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Mm -hmm. Yeah.